early 1930s, a man named Bill Wilson checked himself into the Charles B. Towns Hospital in Manhattan. Uh, for years, he had been struggling to overcome an addiction to alcohol, but wasn't able to do it. In fact, he actually consumed four beers on the way to the hospital. And checking himself in was a kind of final attempt to conquer his addiction. And well, as it turns out, in that hospital, he met someone and he was able to get exactly the help he needed. Bill Wilson ended up overcoming his alcoholism. And within a few years, he started helping others to do exactly the same. And by the end of the decade, after numerous men and women had been able to overcome their addictions to alcohol through the system that he and others developed, they released a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. And that was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, the organization, and, and their 12-step process for overcoming addiction, which has now been utilized by millions of people around the world. In the book, Bill told his own story of repeatedly trying to overcome addiction and repeatedly falling back into it. True healing, he said, did not occur for him until, until he hit rock bottom, until he finally came to the point where he had to admit that he was completely powerless to save himself. In fact, that's the first step of the 12-step process, to admit your incapability to save yourself. As Bill and his co-author put it in their description of the first step in their book, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So that's step number one, admit that you are powerless. And then comes what they describe as step number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, those two steps are still the foundation of every 12-step addiction program. Before an addict can move toward recovery, they must come to terms with their own powerlessness and must put their trust in a power greater than themselves. Of course, in a lot of 12-step programs today, that power is left open for participants to define for themselves. But Bill and all the rest of the original members were Christian. So when they talked about a greater power, they were referring to the God of the Bible. And that makes a lot of sense because in many ways, these first two steps of the AA process, they're also really the foundational posture of biblical religion. In fact, there's a common biblical word that describes this posture. It's the word Hosanna, which is actually a Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana, and it means quite simply, save us. Hosanna is the cry of a people who are at the end of their rope, who have been forced to admit their own powerlessness and are turning in desperation to a power greater than themselves. And that's just what we find in the Bible over and over again. 
That was the cry of the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, we read that the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God, and God heard their groaning. And that's the same thing that happens when the people of Israel finally make it into the land of Canaan. And they settle there, and then they, they end up rebelling against God and find themselves being oppressed once again. And then they cry out to God, save us. If you read the book of Judges, you'll, you'll see this pattern repeated again and again and again. And it's not just in the Old Testament. You may remember the story of the Apostle Peter. When he sees Jesus walking on the waves and he, he tries to walk across the water towards him, and then he, he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. And then what does he say? What does it say in Matthew 14, verse 30? But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Or what about when Jesus came to Jericho? And there was that blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. And he also cried out to him. Even when people were telling him to be quiet, he just... He just kept crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those cries for, for mercy, for deliverance, for salvation, those are cries of Hosanna, save us. And that's exactly the posture that the Bible expects people to take. And in the final chapter of Lamentations, that's, that's exactly what we find. One long sustained cry of Hosanna. When you get to chapter 5 in Lamentations, you'll immediately notice that something has changed. First of all, it seems that the verses have got all of a sudden gotten shorter, and there's a reason for that. As I said before, the first four chapters, they're all a type of acrostic poem where each line begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That pattern has been dropped in chapter 5. It still has 22 verses, but the lines aren't written in the same poetic form. And the meter, the meter's also changed. Before, if you read it in Hebrew, the, the rhythm of the language had a, a kind of slow, limping, dirge-like feel to it. But now in this fifth poem, the rhythm becomes much more normal, like the, the rhythm that you would find in a in a typical lament psalm, which suggests that maybe like a lament psalm, this poem is going to include an expectation of renewal or restoration. And then there's another important difference. You'll remember what I said in the first session that Lamentations is meant to function as a, it's a kind of liturgical script for a community in grief. But so far, all of these poems have been from the voice of individual speakers. It's only really now in the fifth and final poem that the entire community is invited to speak together. You can see it right there in the opening verse. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And finally, Whereas the first four poems were primarily focused on the past, looking back, on describing and grieving over what had taken place, 
Now the attention is on the present situation. Now the people are saying, right now we face a desperate situation. Our land and our homes have been taken from us. Our enemies continue to oppress and exhaust us. We are weary. We can't provide for ourselves. We've had to pay even for basic supplies like drinking water and the, the wood that lights our fires. We have become, as verse 4 puts it, we have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. In a culture where fathers and family were the source of all security and provision, no one was more at risk. No one was more desperate. No one was more in need than widows and orphans. And that, the people say, that is our current situation. In other words, to use the language of Alcoholics Anonymous, we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. And, and then finally, in the midst of all this grief, when their lives have become unmanageable, then they begin to turn to a power greater than themselves. Notice the wording of this shift in verse 19. So far, the people have been describing their current state of suffering and powerlessness, and then they say, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. In chapter two of the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul is describing the desperate state of the Ephesian Christians before they were converted. Remember, he says to them, remember you were once living lives of darkness and deceit. You were once living in living in sin, in bondage, in an outright hostility to God. You were so far gone, so powerless to help yourselves, he says, that the best way to characterize you is just to say that you were dead. And then after saying all that, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God. In many ways, you could say that the whole of the gospel, the whole of Christian faith is contained in those two words. The Bible does not minimize the pain and suffering of our lives, nor does it minimize the, the tragic consequences of our own greed and anger and envy and selfishness, the way that we wrong each other and the way that we are wronged. No, the, the Bible talks very openly and very plainly about all those things. But then to all of them, it offers two words, but God. And that's what we find in this prayer in Lamentations chapter five, when the people shift their attention all of the pain and grief and loss and, and the desperation are clearly stated, but then they say, but you, O Lord, reign forever. And there's an element of, of protest in these words because what they're effectively saying is that their lives are in shambles. 
But the Lord, the God of Israel, is king. He reigns. And these two facts should not both be true. Something is wrong. That's why in the next verse, they, they put their protest in the form of a question to God. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? This community isn't just voicing their grief and lament anymore. Now, in their desperation, now they're asking God to act and to do something about it. There's a story very similar to this that comes from the memoirs of a Jewish woman named Frida Korobkin. And she's recounting her experience as a young girl when she was forced to flee her family home in Austria in 1938. And she had to, to move to England to escape the Nazis. And in her memoir, she talks about the experience of, of one Hanukkah celebration during that time. The menorahs were all lined up on trestle tables, she said. And as another and another candle was added, the hut became brighter and brighter. Until by the eighth night, the whole room was ablaze with light. Boo Boo divided us into three groups and we sang every verse of Ma'ot's Sur in three-part harmony. We repeated the last verse over and over again. We didn't want it to end. We didn't want to let go of the magic. Perhaps there was a certain element of desperation in our singing, as if by shouting loud enough and with enough fervor, we might reach God on his throne, knock him off his pedestal and get him to come down and put everything to rights again. I think that that last line is especially important. What these Jewish youth singing that song on that Hanukkah night wanted, Frida said, was for God to come down and put everything to rights again. What they were saying, in other words, was Hosanna, save us. But what exactly would it look like for things to be put to rights? You might think that from everything we've talked about so far in Lamentations, that it would mean the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and, and the return of the wealth and the health and the safety of its people. But that's not really what the community asks for at the end of their prayer, is it? They don't actually ask for their lands and houses to be restored or for their enemies to be driven away or for their city to be rebuilt as it was before. No, what do they ask for? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us to yourself. Or as the King James puts it, turn us unto thee, O Lord and we shall be turned. After all the lament and all the grief, after all the horror and the sorrow, what the people have come to realize is that what they want most of all isn't just an end to their suffering. They want to know once again what it is like to be in the presence of God. They want their covenant relationship with him restored. And they know that the only one capable of making that happen is God himself. And so at the end, they make their cry, Hosanna, 
Save us, Lord. Turn us to yourself and we shall be turned. Restore us to yourself and we shall be restored.